Blog Talk Radio. This is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem-solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. Once again, that's 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Well, hello there. Um, welcome to the program. Um, coming to you live today from the West Harpswell School in uh, Maine, uh, a gorgeous place where spring is just beginning to happen. The Forsythia are starting to uh, put on their annual show, and um, I'm in this school district. A few schools in this area are uh, implementing collaborative problem solving, or at least uh, giving it a good shot. And um, today I'm in uh, West Harpswell and doing the program from here. Um, And the cool part is some of the folks, the good folks from this school and school system are calling in today to uh, talk about uh, where they're at, um, uh, what struggles they might have run into, uh, what next steps they want to take to uh, fully integrate collaborative problem solving into how they're doing things around here and so uh, we're going to be talking to those folks in fact I'm going to bring them on the air right now I I know that they had some questions but I thought that the questions that they have uh, would be instructive for lots of folks in lots of schools who are um, experimenting with collaborative problem solving and wondering how to take things to the next level so uh, you're on the air and welcome to the program well, thank you. Um, uh, it's really good to have you here today. It's, it's uh, this is you know what this is one of the most beautiful places in the world. So I like coming up here. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, yeah, we've been um, as you know we started an initiative with uh, collaborative problem solving in our two Harpswell schools here, and uh, this is our first year. And I think our staff, um, including teachers and ed techs, um, have have uh, been exposed to the model, have done some reading on it. Um, and um, we have um, divided the staff into mentor groups, mentees with a mentor leading the group. Each mentor had ha- done your initial three-day training, um, and um, and we've met several times in the staff development type format with our mentee groups and um, brought some people along and actually practicing Plan B. Um, but we haven't really... Um, it's beginning to sort of lose some momentum, and so what I'd like you to address maybe for us is um, how do we kind of take it to the next level and 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 um, have people really sort of sign on to committing relentlessly, if you will, to to um, uh, practicing this model. And um, I don't know, you know what I mean? I do. Um, because may- things can kind of slide, I guess, is what I'm saying. And well, and and it's the slide that is. Um, the risk for every school and every school system and, quite frankly, every facility that implements collaborative problem solving. And, quite frankly, it's not just collaborative problem solving that often um, runs into this. It's any new initiative, I find, Mm -hmm. that runs into this. 
And um, new initiatives um, require continuity to stand the test of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I know that the way that you all have exposed yourselves to the model is some of you have attended the uh, a summer advanced training, a three-day advanced training. Right. And just to let people know about those, um, those are described on the Lives in the Balance website, uh, www.livesinthebalance.org. Uh, go to the seminars uh, section of the website, and you'll see the advanced trainings described, and you'll see that not only is there a level one and level two advanced training in Portland, Maine this summer, there's also one in Vancouver and also one in uh, Forest Grove, Oregon, which is right near Portland, Oregon. So there's lots of opportunities for folks in many different parts of the country to access the three-day training. But the, many of the folks in your schools have learned about the model, at least initially, through reading Lost at School. Right. And then getting some coaching from folks who you all are calling mentors who attended the three-day training. Right. Um, However, there hasn't been kind of a structure, I guess, that seems very um, kind of um, ongoing to maintain um, uh, sort of a level of uh, excitement and commitment about it. You know what I mean? It, it, um, it's been happening kind of ad hoc um, without a lot of pre-planning or what you call in your in your uh, training plan formation where all the parties involved with a particular challenging kid sit down together and prioritize what to work on first. That's well, and I find that even when there are schools in Maine, they're called student assessment teams. Yeah. Often I find that a kid is discussed fairly extensively in one student assessment team meeting. Yeah. Or is it student assistant team? Mm-hmm. SAT. SAT, yeah. Um, and then... Often there's a drop-off because that meeting ends with great enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. And that's why the big word is continuity. Right. Um, it's, it's continuity over time. And the big question, as you said, it's been kind of, um, well, my words would be willy-nilly. Yours has mm-hmm. been more ad hoc. Yeah. But I find that no initiative stands the test of time unless there's continuity and people are continuously being brought back to what it is that they're trying to accomplish, and how they're trying to accomplish it. Right. And so, as you know, these days I've been recommending that people front load, as I call it, mm-hmm. some very crucial uh, components that are essential to having collaborative problem solving stand the test of time in a building. Otherwise, collaborative problem solving uh, ends up being like any other initiative, a great idea, but no continuity and therefore um, no follow-through. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a few ways to do that. Um, one is to rely on the energy of a few key people mm-hmm. who keep bringing people back to collaborative problem solving. Right. And um, I guess I've seen that fly in some buildings, but I'm starting to have much more faith in um, building in structures that support collaborative problem solving basically from the word go. In other words, it used to be that I would wait to build in those structures. And now I don't wait anymore. Now I um, build those in right up on the front. Here's some of the structures that I find to be helpful. One thing is we build in a paperwork structure from the get-go. 
And you're talking about like the flow chart kind of Correct. So those two pieces of paper, and it's only two sheets. One is the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, Mm -hmm. which we front load as an integral part of any meeting in which we're talking about and trying to plan for uh, a kid who's got social, emotional, or behavioral challenges. Right. That, well, we've, that, certainly, we've certainly done that to some yeah, extent, but then right. we forget. And exactly. Yeah. So it sounds like you all have done that part. Mm. The second sheet is the Plan B flow chart, which is where we are keeping track, some tracking system, of what we're working on with each challenging kid in the building mm-hmm. and how that's going and whether the unsolved problems of a particular kid, whether we're making headway on them, and what I'm building in these days to make the Plan B flowchart really come alive for people is I'm trying to create CPS teams within each building. Okay, okay. well, we're thinking the same thing. Exactly. And you all already have a CPS team that's been a little bit more informal. Right. But I would formalize it. Yeah. And that team probably needs to meet weekly. That often. Okay. That often because the challenging kids, things change quickly with a challenging kid. Things right. things can change in a week. And I find that if we let, let's say that a teacher has tried Plan B with a kid on Tuesday, and then the meeting you know, is on Thursday, that's fantastic. Only two days have passed, and we can really get a handle on what happened with the kid and mm-hmm. what needs to be done next. But if we're waiting two or three weeks, and let's say the first Plan B, as is often the case, doesn't go that well, mm-hmm. It's two to three weeks before we have follow-up. And during those two to three weeks, we're doing whatever we've always done that wasn't working in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I find that's how continuity starts to slip away. We are losing continuity just by mere virtue of the fact that we're not following up frequently enough. Yeah, yeah. No, that's so true. Yeah. And by the way, it's not just the kid who needs follow-up. It's that teacher of his who's valiantly, bravely, courageously tried Plan B yeah. and would like to feel like he or she is not sort of a lone wolf in the wilderness trying this. Mm-hmm. I mean, what I've said to you all today is that Plan B collaborative problem solving is just as much for the staff as it is for the kids. It is a staff development program as every bit as much as it is a way of trying to solve problems with kids. Right. And we're not only following up to find out if the problem has been solved with the kid, we're following up to find out does that, how does that staff member think that plan B went? Mm-hmm. Do they need any additional coaching? What kind of supports do they need? Do we need to re-strategize? Uh, where, let's hear more about the plan B and where it went and what new information we gathered and whether we want to sort of change our heading based on we, the information that we gathered. Mm-hmm. People who are new to plan B, I'm talking about classroom teachers here, need that level of support um, early on because they're new at this. Right, right. So the continuity piece is absolutely crucial. So there's two sheets of paper, the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, which becomes an integral part of our early meetings about the kid, and the Plan B flowchart, which helps us track and monitor our challenging kids over time and support their teachers in their efforts. Yeah, yeah. That's what it tends to look like. Then right. it's not ad hoc. Then it's not so willy-nilly. And then the follow-up isn't two, three, four weeks later when the teacher may already, quite frankly, have thrown in the towel on Plan B because the first one may not have gone very well. 
right, right. Well, that, that's great. I think we're really um, um, going to take that advice and have decided today that that's what we're going to do, meet weekly and, and, um, and uh, yeah, keep that coordination of information and, and uh, commitment going um, at a higher speed. Um, and then it's not quite so much on you to be the energy. Right. It's not what, I, what I'm trying to avoid these days is having, I think it's great for one or two or three people in the building to be very committed and to be the energy behind Plan B. Mm. But I find that um, that energy tends to get tapped out if these structures aren't in place that support the use of collaborative problem solving, support the language of collaborative problem solving. I'm building those structures in from the word go these days rather than waiting for them to evolve, and mm-hmm. I find that that helps people. Yeah. Well, Having said – go ahead. Yeah. No, it's helpful to think of it like we have done SAT meetings too. So that's it. it's, a, it's a model of meeting and discussion that um, we're familiar with on that I, level. So, yeah. Th- there's also some literature out there saying that almost any new initiative will go through a dip mm-hmm. after the initial burst of enthusiasm. But I find that if we're front-loading all of these things that we're talking about today, um, I think we can do what we can to prevent that dip, Mm -hmm. give teachers the support that they need, and keep track of the challenging kids in the building. Along those lines, one of the questions that has come up today is, um, how do we do this with every kid in the building? Mm -hmm. And the good news is you're not doing it with every kid in the building. You're doing it with the... Two or three kids in the building who we might call your, maybe more than two or three percent, five percent in the building, who we might call your frequent flyers in the school discipline program, Mm -hmm. those are the ones who we're starting with. And as you've also heard me say this morning, we're talking about basically 15 minutes a day of plan B with those kids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Over time. That adds um, up to a lot of time. That does add up to a lot of time. It doesn't, I mean, a lot of people might be thinking, I don't even have 15 minutes a day. Yeah. Well, if, if a school is working on this, then one project for the school, one problem that the school needs to solve is how we find the teachers of the kids who we are prioritizing for using collaborative problem solving, how we find them 15 minutes a day, uh, whether that's coverage or what that is, how we find them 15 minutes a day to be doing Plan B with the kids who everybody's agreeing badly need Plan B to be done with them. And by the way, if we're starting that in September then that's 15 minutes a day from September through June. And my goodness, after a month, maybe we've solved one problem. After two or three months, maybe we've solved two or three problems. And over the duration of a school year, um, we should have a kid who's looking pretty good. Now, he's not the only one getting 15 minutes a day. There might be one or two other kids in the class who are competing for collaborative problem-solving time. What I find that is that if you start with your frequent flyers, then suddenly their unsolved problems aren't taking up quite so much time and we're finding success with them. And we start extending the model to the other kids in the class as well. Mm-hmm. That's, that's when it's really going well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, do you mind if I ask you some more specific questions Please. about um, some you know, challenges we've run across? Sure. Just um, don't name any names. No, yep. no. Um, we've had experience with the drilling phase, um, bringing to light many sort of family issues. As one question 
about what is going on leads to another question and another question about what's going on at home, for instance. Mm-hmm. And it's done all in the in the wish by the you know by the adult to build on empathy and connection with the kid and understanding kind of their whole their whole situation. But at what point would you describe this um, this information gathering phase not useful or not applicable or or whatever for solving actually the problem that we've noticed at school? So I guess let me paraphrase the question if I understand it. Yeah. When you're drilling for information, sometimes you come across information that is about families of kids. Yeah. Um, and the big question is, uh, to what degree is that information that we really need to know about? Right. To what degree is it relevant to the problems that you're seeing at school? Right. Because I think it's easy to um, sometimes to get so involved in what the kid is describing um, and wanting to help them problem solve other issues in their life so that they come to school happier or more ready for learning, et cetera, et cetera, you know? Yes. And, um, I mean, my focus has been, and I just don't know whether I'm sort of overemphasizing this or not, that we need to be exclusively focused on what we're noticing at school that's getting in the way of learning here. And I would I would say that it's not so exclusive. Okay. But I would also say that my experience, and uh, let's not take this too much to heart because there's a lot of gray in this discussion, my experience is that folks at school tend to overemphasize what's going at home, what's going yeah. on at home. That's my experience too. I think. As yeah. the root cause of the difficulties we're having at school. Right. And um, I think that uh, there's no black and white answer here. Mm. There are times when what's going on at home is relevant to what's going on at school. Once again, my bias is that people tend to overemphasize what's going on at home. But um, it doesn't mean we don't want to hear about it, especially if the kid wants to be talking about it, because in the empathy step, we really don't want to do anything that's going to cause the kid to stop talking. So if he's talking about home, we're probably listening to him talking about home. But we're also evaluating to what degree what we're hearing about is truly relevant to the difficulties that we're seeing at school. Yeah. And the answer is sometimes they are, and oftentimes what's going on at home really isn't that relevant to what's going on at school. Here, here's what I find starts to happen. If a kid is having trouble at school, suddenly we are paying attention to what's going on at home. Mm-hmm. But if we were to interview the kids who are not having trouble at school, we might find that their home life is just as interesting. It's just that we weren't trying to figure out why they were doing poorly because they aren't doing poorly. Yeah. So I find that this is one of the reasons that we tend to glom on to what's going on at home. We're, we're talking to the kids who are doing poorly when, in fact, lots of kids in the building who don't have the ideal home life. And so I find that it's, once again, uh, we want to avoid correlation equals causation. Um, Lots of kids in the building don't have ideal home lives, but the ones who we are especially hearing about they're not ideal home lives are the ones who are acting up at school, thereby causing us to draw a spurious correlation between life at home and life at school. Having said that, there are times when uh, a kid is coming into school in a bad mood 
that we might want to hear more about that. And believe it or not, I mean, next comes the big question, another big question, and that is, do we, to what degree do we need the folks at home to solve the, help us solve the problems that are going on at school? Right. Yeah. And the answer there is, once again, believe it or not, as much as I love collaboration between the folks at school and the folks at home, not as often as you might think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we may need the parents or parent for some unsolved problems. We may not need them, but simply want to keep them informed and try to get as much information from them about what's going on, but not necessarily need them to be part of the problem-solving process. And there are times when we can't have the parents anyways. Sometimes it's just not feasible that we're going to have parents involved in our school problem-solving. Mm-hmm. That sometimes causes a lot of folks to say, well, then if we don't have the home folks, then we can't solve it here at school. And I find that not to be the case at all. Okay. Yeah. So there's no, as you can tell, it's a gray area. Right. Um, there are lots of problems going on at school that are not um, derived from difficulties that are going on at home. There are lots of problems that are going on at school that um, we don't necessarily need the parents' help in helping us solve. And there are some that are going on at school that are directly derived from what's going on at home that we may not be able to do anything about what's going on at home, but still actually set the stage for the kid to at least have a productive, safe day at school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hope that answers the question. Yeah, no, I just, I just sort of wanted your thoughts around that whole issue. So that's, that's really helpful. Thanks. A lot of sorting through that needs to be done. Um, I'm, I love collaboration between home and school. We don't always need it. Right, right. Well, and I think um, we can, as you were saying, can get very wrapped up in what we perceive to be going on at home and have all kinds of kind of ideas about that <laughs> that aren't Lots necessarily of revelant, revelant. Yeah. Right. We, we yeah. have to remember that the kids who we're mostly getting that information from are the kids who we're talking to anyways. Yeah. about their behavior at school, and that can sometimes cause us to the erroneous belief that the only kids who are having trouble at home are the ones who are acting up at school, and that is a completely erroneous belief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said you had some other questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, hold on one minute. Does anyone else like to? Did you want to? Okay, here, someone else is going to ask you a question. Outstanding. Here, yeah. Hi, Ross. Um, We've also been thinking about um, some of the students that we've attempted uh, Plan B with that are younger. So, for example, a kindergarten or a first grade student that uh, when a teacher has attempted um, the, you know, the plan um, has found some drilling roadblocks and some of those have been that the student isn't as able to verbalize um, or answer some of those questions. And we wondered if there was some um, help or expertise you could give us in working with very young children, five- and six-year-olds. Well, that's interesting. I love, I love the question. I, believe it or not, I wouldn't call five or six very young because I, so I do collaborative problem-solving with three-year-olds, sometimes two-year-olds, which some people have a great deal of difficulty believing. But um, it really... Uh, so I can't say that there is a specific strategy that would be applied based on chronological age. Mm-hmm. There are specific strategies that I apply based on what I'm seeing sitting in front of me and why they may be having difficulty participating in Plan B. Um, I will say that 
um, and I think you may have heard me say this already today, um, the biggest, the most common reasons I find kids not participating in Plan B actually don't have that much to do with the kid. They have to do with us adults mm-hmm. and how we're going about trying to do Plan B. So let me review those, but then we'll definitely get to what if it is something about the kid as well. Okay. Um, but since I don't find that it's that most often, um, and my attitude is there's really nothing about the age of five or six that that says to me this kid would um, be compromised in his ability to participate in Plan B. So nothing about that age, um, mm-hmm. or sometimes even younger. Um, the things that adults sometimes um, go off track on with Plan B that greatly reduce the likelihood of a kid talking are they haven't yet filled out the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. They haven't yet made their list of unsolved problems on the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. They haven't yet prioritized which unsolved problems they want to be working on with the kid, and so they either are working on something that's so vague that the kid has no idea what we're talking about, or they're working on so many things that everybody's getting overwhelmed by the sheer number of things we're trying to work on with the kid. So that that can happen. So step number one, of course, is for the adults to get organized Mm -hmm. and fill out the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. Um, make that list of those highly specific unsolved problems that are reliably and predictably um, setting in motion the kids' challenging episodes, and then decide which two or three you're going to work on to start. Okay. That's crucial. And then, uh, I'm not, then what that sets the stage for is for us to do Plan B in a planful, proactive fashion. Another way in which adults go awry in Plan B, and that greatly reduces the likelihood of a kid talking, is they do Plan B emergently rather than proactively. Uh, Because we have filled out the ALSIP and because we know what unsolved problems uh, we could be working on with the kid and because we've prioritized and we know exactly which ones we're working on right now, as I always say, 99.9% of the Plan Bs we do should be proactive Plan B, uh, especially crucial because trying to do Plan B emergently in the heat of the moment uh, is quite the conversation stopper and makes it very hard for kids to provide us with the information we're looking for in the empathy step. Mm -hmm. Sometimes adults, even after they have filled out the ALSIP, aren't very specific about the unsolved problem that they're working on, so they present the unsolved problem to the kid in a way that is so vague that the kid really doesn't know what we're talking to him about or asking him about, and that's a conversation stopper. Um, Sometimes we're not being very neutral in uh, that empathy step. Sometimes we have uh, preordained notions about what the kid is up to, preordained notions about uh, the character of the kid, preordained notions about what the solution has to be. Um, We're not being neutral. And not being neutral is a huge conversation stopper. So isn't it amazing? I've just gone through a bunch of things that could make it difficult for a kid to talk to us in Plan B, none of them, quite frankly, having anything to do with the fact that the kid is five or six years old, but um, all of them adult-related issues that could make it difficult for a kid to talk. Right. Now, having said all of those, and and quite frankly, I find that a very high percentage of the time, once I'm through covering those, we find that there are many of those things. Uh, Adults are sort of looking at each other with knowing glances and saying to themselves, oh my, so 
doing this emergently when the kid is already hot would make it hard for him to talk. I can see that. We better start doing it proactively. Mm-hmm. Starting with an unsolved problem that is really vague, I can see how that would make it very difficult for the kid to participate in Plan B. So you mean ro- me rolling my eyes and um, telling the kid he's being dishonest wouldn't be the best way to get him talking? I got it. Um, now, let's say we've passed through all those and we still have a kid who isn't talking. Then it's useful to think about, well, does he have the language skills, the communication skills to be participating in Plan B? Do, uh, have we surprised him? Um, I think that proactive Plan B should not only be planned, but I don't think it's a bad idea for the kid to know what it is that we'd like to talk with him about mm-hmm. before we start talking with him about it so that he's not surprised by the topic. Right. Um, does have we been? Do, do we not have the type of relationship with him? Have our past relationships with him, our, our past interactions with him, has his history uh, set the stage for him to be very defensive in his response to our uh, attempts to gather information in the empathy step? Does he need reassurance from us that um, he's not in trouble, that we're not mad, that all we're trying to do here is understand? Once again. These are things that could just as easily come into play with a 15- or 16-year-old mm-hmm. as with a 5- or 6-year-old. Mm-hmm. So, so far, nothing that I've mentioned would be specific to a certain age. These are just the things that often get in the way. Okay. Uh, what I will sometimes say to kids if I'm wondering if there is a communication skill issue getting in the way is I'll sometimes say, do, do you not understand what I um, asked do you do you not um, understand? Do you not know what it is that you want to say? Do you know what you want to say, and you know what I asked, but you're not ex- exactly sure what words to put it in? Mm-hmm. You know, if all this is being done proactively, then we can get some pretty useful information that way. By the way, if a kid isn't talking in emergency plan B, we really don't know if it's the heat of emergency plan B or something else that's getting in the kid's way. Mm-hmm. But we can knock out the heat part by doing this proactively and at least reassure ourselves or at least find out, was it the heat or is there something about just this process that's getting in his way? So there, as you can tell, there's a lot of things that could make it difficult for a kid to talk. Our job is to try to figure out which one it is. Okay, that's helpful. That's a great question. Uh, we have another one, um, if we have time. There's we do. We have about we... 14 minutes left. And okay. by the way, I'm going to give the phone number, as I always forget to do, but I'm actually remembering to do it. Okay. Um, if others want to call in and either ask a question of me or ask a question of you all who mm-hmm. have been um, trying to help people do Plan B in the buildings that you're in, the call-in number is 646-727-2691. Um, go ahead. All right, this has to do with the um, time that you might spend doing a session of Plan B, on Plan B. For example, um, this morning we worked with you, I know, on attempting a couple of those sessions, and time, of course, was an issue. I mean, there's, there doesn't ever seem to be enough time. But uh, specifically, there was one instance when I was working with a student and the classroom teacher, and um, we ended up talking and the child talking for about 45 minutes and really didn't get 
very far. And so we needed to say to the student, oh, you know, would you like to, you know, could we carry this conversation over to another time? Um, I, it seemed a little lengthier than what would be an average. So do you have any pointers on how we could be more efficient yet giving uh, that whole process enough time? Well, um, I think that you have a sense early on for whether the plan B that you're doing is heading in a productive direction. Mm -hmm. So the real question, I guess, is um, do you feel um, that you're able to adjust within plan B quickly enough if you feel it's heading in a direction that isn't terribly productive? Can you figure out why early on so that you're not um, spinning your wheels for 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. Now, there's uh, there's no average amount of time spent in the empathy step or in plan B. I will say this. Uh, I'll take 45 minutes of getting incredible information from a kid. I'll, I'll go longer than that okay. if I'm getting great information. But if 15 minutes in, I'm finding, I'm thinking to myself, this is going nowhere. And I'm not exactly sure why. And I'm not exactly sure what to do to get it to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I would spend 45 minutes doing that. I think I might spend 15 minutes doing that. And once again, there's no hard and fast rules here. There have been times when people were able to adjust within Plan B and get it to go in a more productive direction. And right. But if, in, if at the 15-minute mark the adult is thinking, this is going nowhere, and I don't understand why. And so I think I would like to, and I don't think that I'm going to be able to adjust. I think I need some time to think about why this is not getting us anywhere and then come back to him rather than spending the next 45 minutes not being able to figure it out. Right. I mean, you never know when you're going to stumble on something or stumble onto a, uh, a question or an area of inquiry that might actually be the one that gets the kid talking. So I would say this is mostly based on the degree to which the adult feels they are using this time productively and able to adjust within Plan B to try to get the information that they're looking for. But if they're truly sitting there thinking, this is going nowhere and I have no idea why and I don't know what to do to get it back on track, I would say that's a good time to cut it off at 15 minutes rather than spend 45 minutes that way. Okay, and I, I, the example that I was thinking of was definitely one of our first attempts yep. to sit with a student, and I think we were all just trying our hardest to um, try to do the right thing, and, and again, it was not perfect at all, but, um, you know, <laughs> I, I think if I did that tomorrow, I'd have a better understanding about, you know, when it wouldn't be working and so on, so... Um, so maybe you wouldn't go for the full 40. Maybe you'd right, be able to adjust. Maybe I, we would have stopped it. And actually, on that note, um, and I, and again, I'm, I think I have somewhat of an, of an idea of your answer, but we also were dealing with a major issue that had happened with that student. It was the, the lines were fuzzy. It was we were trying to do a plan B. We had scheduled it, yet this student had done something that needed um, an emergency plan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we were I believe attempting to do a couple of things at once once which didn't go very well as you can well imagine yep so in retrospect we would have not held that plan b conversation that particular day but you know we lived and learned um yes 
And one of the things that, yes, um, if you have many agendas, instead of simply gathering information from the kid, mm-hmm. then it is often the case that, I mean, what I'm telling people these days that they should be thinking about when they're doing the empathy step is what don't I understand yet about the kid's concern or perspective on this unsolved problem that I'm trying to talk with them about? What mm-hmm. what part of the picture isn't complete for me yet? And therefore, what should I be asking next? And how should I word it so that he keeps talking because he's talking so far? Anything that competes with or interferes with that line of thinking is probably going to make it difficult for us to drill well for information in the empathy step. So if we go into plan B with sort of a mixed agenda, we've got, we we need to sort of take action, but we're also trying to drill for information. My, My bet is that that's likely to cause us to drill in ways that are not so efficient. Right. And that may be what you experienced. That seemed to be the case, yes. Right. Um, but uh, the other thing adults, of course, often think about when they're drilling, something they ought not think about when they're drilling, is they're already thinking about solutions. And that, that oh, may also absolutely. be what was going on. Yes, And absolutely. I find that it is impossible. First of, all, first of all, if you don't understand the kid's concern or perspective yet, then it's almost impossible to think of solutions yet. So we shouldn't be thinking about solutions in the first place. Right. But secondly, if we're busy thinking about solutions, then we are um, not thinking about what we don't quite understand about his concern or perspective yet, what about mm-hmm. the picture isn't yet complete, what it is that we need to ask next to complete it, and how we should word it so that we get that information. Right. I just find that's a lot that's a lot of interference for people who are really trying to understand. Yes. And so you want to go into that empathy step and the drilling for information part really with one goal in mind. I really want to understand this kid's concern or perspective on this unsolved problem. I'm really curious about it, and I know that if I don't understand it, this problem's not going to get solved anyways. Right, right. Does that help? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Ross, you made reference to... Um, Spending about 15 minutes a day, um, uh, for example, a classroom teacher building in some time, at, if not daily, but at least a, a couple of times during the week to work on collaborative problem solving with her students or a student or students in the classroom. Yes. I don't know if you've answered or spoken more about that this afternoon, but I I wondered if you haven't um Talk, you know, I've spoken to the colleague that was on the phone earlier. Wondered if you could speak to that about how that might be um, help us with the efficiency and um, you know using our time wisely and actually gaining time or you know being helpful in the long run. I got it. So um, as I've been saying lately, um, Plan B saves time, but you have to put time into Plan B for it to save time. Right. A lot of people hear me saying. 15 minutes a day per classroom should be dedicated to problem-solving the problems that are setting in motion challenging behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes classroom teachers need help finding that 15 minutes. Right. Sometimes classroom teachers need coverage finding those 15 minutes. Um, but I always find that the 15 minutes a day is there. Um, there's, there's lots of things we find 15 minutes a day for, 
that are um, not necessarily as productive as finding 15 minutes a day to solve the problems of the kids in our classroom whose unsolved problems are setting in motion their challenging behavior. Um, but I guess the key point is this. We also have to give thought to how much time we are spending not doing it that way. Mm-hmm. And um, I often find that we are putting a great deal of time into not doing it that way in terms of lost teaching time, disruptions to the class, um, having to escort the kid down to the office. Um, there are so many things we do that don't solve the problem, but that do take time. Right. The good news is that if we're putting 15 minutes a day into collaborative problem solving, eventually we're not putting all that time into doing the things that are not productive. Mm-hmm. Th- those distractions, somebody, you know, sometimes people have to be called to come get a kid. Um, the, you know, the, the learning in the classroom has now been disrupted. Um, something erupts in the classroom. It takes another 10 minutes to get people back on track. Um, all of these things that are proof that we haven't solved the problem yet take mm-hmm. an enormous amount of time. Right. So let me repeat the mantra. You have to put time into plan B for it to save you time. But um, the 15 minutes a day concept is one that a lot of people have latched onto. It actually makes it sound like it's not so much. But if we put 15 minutes a day in five days a week over the course of an entire school year, mm-hmm. we're not just solving, not, we don't just have time for solving the problems of the kids who are frequent flyers in our school discipline program. We also start having 15 minutes to, to, to work on the problems of the kids who weren't frequent flyers, but actually, believe it or not, were the ones whose problems we would have actually liked to have heard more about and helped them with. We just didn't have the time to do it because we've been so busy spinning our wheels with the kids who are demanding our attention because they're disrupting the class. So uh, I don't think that 15 minutes a day ends when we, um, you know, in, in January or February or March, feel like we are on top of the unsolved problems that are causing challenging behavior in our frequent flyers, we keep going because there's every kid in the classroom has problems that need to be solved and things that they could be working on. Right. And specifically, are you talking about times such as uh, snack time or times in the, the school day where there might be, I mean, certainly not um, direct instruction going on, so a time where a teacher could pull a child to the side, not necessarily out of the classroom then? Well, I think that there are logical times that collaborative problem-solving can occur, um, but I I recommend calling it problem-solving time. Mm -hmm. And um, when that occurs is something that I tend to figure out with each individual teacher. Um, So some would go with snack time as a good time for problem-solving time. And by the way, kids are observant. Kids are noticing. Um, That's problem-solving time. Uh, And even the ones who we might call well-behaved are noticing and they're thinking, when do I get problem-solving time? Right. And of course, they're going to get problem-solving time to it. They may not be first in line, mm-hmm. but what we're doing is we're creating a tone in the classroom in which the teacher is seen as uh, a collaborative problem-solver, mm-hmm. someone who really wants to hear about unsolved problems when they come up, someone who is highly skilled at getting information so that the problem is well understood, um, someone who's fair someone who's even-handed, someone who's neutral, um, and someone who kids really want to go to um, with problems. And um, I can't imagine a more ideal setup than that. All right. Thank you for that, um, you know, for those examples. On that note, we probably need to call it a day with our program. All right. These are excellent questions, and once again, they come from folks 
um, in a uh, in two schools um, in Maine where um, collaborative problem solving uh, initial steps at employment and collaborative problem solving have been put in motion um, and they're looking for help trying to think of how to get this ball rolling in a way that is more reliable um, and more durable, um, outstanding. And I hope that the information that uh, they've been asking for and the information that was provided for them was helpful for you who were listening as well. On that note, let's call it a day. Uh, next week, there is no program uh, on April 19th because of a holiday in the Boston area. It's Patriots Day. It's the running of the Boston Marathon. Two weeks is the next program. I hope you'll join me then. Take care.